0: Thank you, Josh. do you please keep your Bibles open. Let me pray for us. I think this is my three hundred and eighty third sermon at MRC. I think that's right, which I think is about eight days worth of me droning on. so well done. Keep you moving from the start. Let me pray. Ask God to help us. Father in Heaven, we thank you that you love to speak to your children. And we thank you that we can, this morning, meet freely together with your word in our hands. Uh, So we pray that you would soften our hearts, that we might hear your voice. Be at work among us, please, we pray. Nourish us, encourage us, comfort us, challenge us. Speak to us for your glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. What is God really like? What would you say? It's a huge question, isn't it? Not what is he like to me? What does what do I think of when I think of the word God? But he's no, he's revealed himself to us, he's made himself known, and so we don't have license to recreate him or reshape him or reimagine him as the kind of God that we would like him to be. But there can be a lot of a reshaping God in our image that goes on in our culture at the moment. And maybe that means we end up with a sort of idealized version of us and a God who agrees with all our views on the world and on politics and the environment and sexuality and everything. But that kind of thinking doesn't work. We, we can't recreate God. That is what the Bible calls idolatry, shaping a God, looking to a God, bowing down to the kind of God that we want the one who we think will rescue us and provide for us. Sometimes idolatry is creating a new God out of wood or metal or something and then, and then looking to it for meaning and purpose. But sometimes it's a sort of functional God. It's where our heart veers for security and value and savings or stuff or popularity or, or niceness or our power or whatever it is, functionally we worship there. Or, or sometimes idolatry is reshaping the true God into a god that we're a bit happier with we give him a bit of pr advice we sand off some of the rough edges we we do a bit of photoshopping getting rid of the awkward stuff that we're not so pleased with or keen on in our culture and and that's our god we say but of course we can't do that we're not at liberty to do that because he has revealed himself to us i said before at mrc um But if I said to you, one of the things I love about my wife is her beautiful green eyes and curly brown hair, you would know something was up, because she has neither green eyes nor curly brown hair. And getting her wrong, however wholeheartedly I am, is a nonsense and has consequences. While so getting God wrong, however wholehearted we are, is a nonsense and has consequences because we can know him, because he's revealed himself to us. So back to the question again, what is God like? And to explore that question this morning, we're going to go somewhere slightly obscure. It's a bit of history that you might not be that familiar with, uh, with names of people that you might struggle to say. It's from a very short account. Josh read it for us. It's from the, the early Israelite kings. It's a story. It's a beautiful story, I think. And stories, don't they? Stories have a way of lodging in our hearts. I heard it said, if you tell me a fact, I will learn. If you tell me the truth, I will believe. But if you tell me a story, it will live in my heart forever. And friends, I think this little story in 2 Samuel 9 for this morning tells us the big story of the world. The big story of the Bible, the gospel. These few obscure verses about this little guy whom we've probably forgotten about stunningly point us to the overarching narrative of the scriptures, of the Bible. But I am aware it's slightly obscure. So a bit of context first. What's going on in Samuel? The story so far in the Bible is that we are in the land that God promised to Abraham. And David is settled there as king. It hadn't been an easy season though. The previous king, Saul. Do you remember Saul? He was a false start. And again and again and again, he tries to do away with David. And just to complicate things, Saul's son, Jonathan, was David's closest friend. And yet the end of 1 Samuel ends with everyone dead on the battlefield. All of that family dead, gone. Which leaves David as the new king, as God's king. Peace and prosperity and life as it was meant to be lived. And it gets even better. We feel like we're on the tip of the mountain because, do you remember, two chapters before 2 Samuel 9, of course we do, we say, 2 Samuel 7 is a key Bible promise made to King David. Do you remember it? God says to him, no, you won't build a temple for me, David. You won't build a house for me. I will build a household in and through you forever. And one from your line, King David, someone from your family will rule forever. So it feels like we're the top of the mountain. Life as it was meant to be lived. New beginnings, a new chapter, and new hope. Which means we get to 2 Samuel 9 and verse 1 and we're kind of left scratching our heads a bit. It's confusing, it's curious, it's a bit left field even. David says, how can I bless one from Saul's family for the sake of Jonathan? And I picture, if they were making a film of this, at about this point, we, we are there processing and scratching our heads and thinking, what a strange question to ask. But there is a flashback in the film. Everyone's younger. Everyone's wearing different clothes from a previous era, a bit more hair, a few less wrinkles. And we've gone about 15 to 20 years in the past. And we're in 1 Samuel 20, and we are eavesdropping a conversation between David and his best mate Jonathan, and they're making a binding agreement, a covenant together. And Jonathan is speaking, and he says, "'May the Lord be with you, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed, and don't ever cut off your kindness from my family.' not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. We'll come back to that. But present day, King David, a man after God's own heart, so many years later begins this search for someone from Jonathan's family whom he can show the lord's kindness to whom he can bless and look after just as he promised 20 years before and look down the initial search leads us to this servant named Zeba who's linked to Saul's family and he's summoned for a royal interview more than likely pretty terrified he's part of the previous regime he's thinking ah game over They've got me, finished. But he then tells him about a son of Jonathan's named Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth is sent and collected and summoned for royal interview. Again, more than likely, pretty terrified. Saul's grandson, probably thinking, game over, they found me. But then what happens next is really strange. Not what we would have expected, maybe, not particularly. Uh, Darwinian, shall we say. Surely he should be crushed and the weak done away with. He's an enemy, he's opposition. What is God like, we ask? Well, dig in and we'll see something at least of what God is like. Notice a couple of aspects with me. First of all, Mephibosheth was helpless. He hadn't been born like it, but he was unable to walk. He was crippled in both feet, after an accident when he was very young. You can actually read about it about five chapters before. And all his friends grew up. And they didn't have to rely on others. And they could run and play and dance and just get on with life. And there he is, stuck, left out. In a sense, he is broken. He's the king's grandson. He's the prince's son. But he is helpless, dependent upon others, broken. It's there in the text in verse 3 and verse 12. It's it's his introduction and his conclusion, his top and his tail. Do you see it? He is lame in both feet. We can't miss it. What's the main thing we're meant to know about him? What's the thing that's left ringing in our ears? He is lame. Maybe he crawls. Maybe he had crutches. Maybe our heart goes out to him. But then the second thing to notice is that he was an enemy, at least an enemy to David. That's implicit in the story. We we know he's an enemy because he's from Saul's line. He's hiding away in obscurity. Verse four. Ziba answered, "He's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lo Debar." and And Lo Debar means no pasture, or or literally Lo means no, and Debar means nothing. This place, this settlement, is so devalued; people call it no thing, nothing. It's a nowhere, it's a nowhere place. And here's Mephibosheth, presumably in his mid-twenties by now. He's become a man, he's hidden away without a place to call his own, literally in the middle of nowhere. He is hiding. And yet he is dragged out from obscurity into the open. And we know he's an enemy implicitly because we know the story, we know where he's come from. But it's explicit too because Mephibosheth simply means son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. And what had King Saul done? Well, I reckon there's at least 12 times in 1 Samuel where he has plotted or attempted to kill David. At least a dozen. And suddenly we have Mephibosheth in the bloodline of Saul. Saul the enemy, the opposition, from the wrong line, from the wrong regime. In our culture, we would say he is on the wrong side of history. Just keep quiet, Mephibosheth. This is not your time. And he knew that. What was he expecting as he stands with his crutches before King David? I don't think it's a stretch too far to say that he expected consequences. He would be a target. And so there he is, standing before David, bowing bowing down to pay him honour. Verse 7, you can see he is clearly terrified. Because David says, don't be afraid. But just look at how he treats him. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall at this point? Don't be afraid, David said, for I will surely show you kindness... For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Well, verse 10, to his servant, Zeba then, David says, You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crop so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now, Zeba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And we think, what? Where are the consequences? He and all his family and all the servants are to be brought into the family of David, taken out of obscurity, taken out of nowheresville, and brought into somewhere, living in Jerusalem, the capital city, eating at the table of the king, choice food, fellowship, intimacy. This is outrageous. That's not the script. And not just for a season, a bit of kindness, But he's got an inheritance and a future. All the fields being farmed for him. Look, what is going on? Why? Is David just having a good day? Why is Mephibosheth treated like this? And we're meant to scratch our heads to some extent. It should be our question. It was certainly his question, verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And he's not given an answer. But I think the answer is in the text. The answer is, What is the God of the Bible like? What is God really like? I think the answer comes down to his character. And David, God's king, a man after God's own heart, has grasped and knows the character of God, loves the character of God. Maybe he's been shaped by the character of God. He's not perfect, but he gets God. And there's a key Bible word that is repeated three times in these verses. And I think the whole story hangs around this one word. It's there in verse 1, and it's there in verse 3, and it's there in verse 7. And what is it? And this is not rhetorical. But kindness, thank you. Kindness. And kindness certainly is a part of it. It's it's the Hebrew word hesed. Sometimes in our Bibles we have it as loving kindness. Sometimes we sing, as we will in a bit, loving kindness as the flood. And think that word kindness, think faithfulness. Mercy, goodness, loyalty, steadfast love. It's the way the God of the Bible, because of who he is, treats his people and deals with his word. And of course, foundation it comes from the way that God has described himself and revealed himself to us. So do you remember Moses up on the mountain? God has rescued his people from Egypt given them freedom through the the Red Sea, given them good laws that reflect him. So when the world looks at them, however imperfect they are, they see something of him, something of what God is like. So because he's a God of truth, his people are not to lie. Because he's a God of faithfulness, his people are not to commit adultery. And so Moses, up the mountain, Sees something of God, is allowed to see the Lord passing him by, but actually it's not so much seeing, it's more hearing. Our God loves words. Do you remember? And so God passed by in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. What am I like? says God. I am a God of Hesed love, grace, kindness. And you get it, because of who God is, so David keeps his promises like God does and pours out his undeserved love on an enemy like God does. And there is Mephibosheth, helpless and nothing and hiding and broken and he is brought in as a son. In fact, it was there in the flashback 20 years before, when they all had more hair. David is showing Jonathan's line, unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. If we knew Samuel well and we were close readers of the text, we might not be quite so surprised in 2 Samuel 9. And maybe you're thinking, okay, Slightly weird sermon. Um, This all feels a little bit obscure and a slightly interesting historical chronicle. And why does this matter to me this morning? Why does this matter for September? Why does this matter for the year ahead? Why does this matter today? Because this little story shows us the big story. This little word kindness shows us what God is like. King David points beyond himself, points to one from his line who will rule forever, whose name is Jesus. And you know, this might not be a popular thought in a current world obsessed with strength and self-esteem, but naturally then, that makes us Mephibosheth. We're not the heroes of the story. At least in the storyline of the Bible, we are the helpless enemy of God, hiding away, broken, far from him, and deserving nothing. The story of the Bible is that this world isn't just a big accident that just happens to be here a, a cosmic fluke, and we're all here by chance, somehow. I don't quite get it, but spinning at a thousand miles an hour on the third rock from the sun, existing in some way. Now the Bible says this is a world that's been lovingly made by God. And yet this God who made us so often, at best we treat him like an irrelevant footnote and at worst we treat him as our enemy. We don't want him. And so we create all kinds of other gods in our image who we think will provide and we think will satisfy and who we run to for life. The gods of grades and success and money and stuff and likes and kudos or whatever it is, fill in the blanks for you and, and you feel it validates you and completes you and comforts you. But we've walked out on him. We've turned aside from him and if he's truly good and we turn away, that makes us enemies. That makes us Mephibosheth. And he can't just ignore our wrongdoing and pretend it's not there or pretend we've not rejected him. But he's a God of promises, a God of covenants, and a beautiful promise, which means he can't just ignore us and in love he searches for us. And maybe, maybe we're there like Mephibosheth Trembling before him, fearful, not quite sure of what he wants from us. Not quite sure of what he's after or, or where we stand before him. or Are we okay? And the king takes the initiative and he shows us the love of the father and he adopts us into his family and gives us a place at the table that we don't deserve and we could never deserve. Paul would say a bit later, the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, at just the right time when we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. He would say, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of us, we are helpless enemies. We're the ungodly, we are sinners, part of the old regime, part of the previous way of doing things. And maybe we ought to be hiding. But God shows his Hesed love to people like us. He's kind and loving and faithful and generous and good. And the king, in his love for his enemies, dies on a cross so that we are no longer enemies. The king, in his love, takes the punishment that we deserve so we can be welcomed in and giving a place at the table and an extraordinary, stupid inheritance that we just don't deserve. I am Mephibosheth, and so are you. I don't know all of you. I don't know your stories. I don't know your history. I don't know your skeletons. I don't know the stuff that weighs on you heavily from your past. Maybe you know you're an enemy. Maybe you look back on this last week or month or year or decade and and, and we the people sat around you, if we knew that thing about you, that stuff, you're not quite sure you could cope. You're not quite sure you could hold your head up. But friend, look at what happens to enemies you come before, this, this kind of a king. Maybe you come and feel broken, and you can associate something with Mephibosheth in that sense. You feel lame. I think that's one of the things I love most about Mordom Road is that there are, so often there's little pretense here. There's a lot of honesty. People know it's okay not to be okay. There's an an honesty, a vulnerability about brokenness. So physically or mentally or emotionally or something, you you know something of that feeling of being Mephibosheth-like. And there he is, hiding in nowheresville, and you would love to be there with him, just tucked away, Not having to deal with people and hiding from God. And... But the king, in his love, comes and tracks him down and brings him into the open and pours out this undeserved kindness. And look what happens. His, his welcome isn't a sort of second-class, slightly embarrassing, just-out-of-prison welcome. Someone who's not wearing the appropriate clothes or didn't bring a gift when they meant to. Just about tolerated at the dinner table. If you have to, just sit quietly. Not a bit of it. He's valued, he's included, he's drawn in. Part of the family, eating like one of the king's sons. Given an inheritance, shown love. Not because of what he brings. He's, He's not particularly capable or useful. But simply because... Of what God is like. Simply because of loving kindness. Simply because of hesed. Which is just what we receive too. From enemies to children. From hopeless and nowhere to an extraordinary inheritance. An eternity with him. Again, later in the Bible, John would write, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Or Peter would write, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. That's the way of the kingdom. and That's again another thing I love about Mordlem Road is that we're not perfect in this but we've worked hard to value and love and, and include people from all kind of backgrounds or at least many backgrounds but all have a place at the table. All are loved and valued and included and, and this meal of Mephibosheth, this provision for him and for his family, it points us on to something bigger. This little story for this morning reminds us of the bigger story to come, because this, this is not all there is. This is not the end. This is not it. We have a hope. The Bible ends with a picture of a banquet, and and Jesus tells this extraordinary story of this banquet, I take it, of the wedding feast. And they get it all ready, and the invites go out, as is the way. People don't RSVP. And, and then all these unexpected guests get brought in as well. So the master said to his servants, the wedding banquet's ready, but those I invited didn't deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite the banquet, anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find the bad, as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. The the unlikelies come, the Mephibosheths come, and are given a place. Now, I don't know what you think this world is about. Many of us will come along on a Sunday morning, but maybe you've got big questions. Maybe you feel like you're just... Kind of walking along, but is this really your faith? Is this something that you can trust? Is this going to shape you and your life? The Bible would say at the heart of reality is a God who loves us, a God who made us. And this loving kindness, this hased love. This taking in the unlikely and the unexpected, this bringing in of broken enemies, those with a history and heavy shoulders and heavy hearts and and skeletons and all kinds of mess and mayhem, all kinds of confusion and chaos, and bringing them in and giving them a place at the table and an inheritance and a future. That is what the world is about. Friends, we are Mephibosheth. But gloriously, we have a, a king called Jesus who is kind and who offers life to all who would accept it. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of Hesed love, loving kindness, mercy, grace, who treats us not as we deserve, but rather pours out mercy and love and inheritance. And in all our sin and our brokenness and our hiding away, you bring us out into the open. And you bless us in ways that we cannot comprehend. Lord, for those of us who struggle with this big story, for those of us who who reshape you in the kind of God we want you to be, but then you never quite satisfy, for those of us who are just struggling with life and feeling the reality of our, our sin or our brokenness, might we see something more of your beauty and your goodness? And as we see what you're really like, would that shape us and shape our worlds? We're sorry for hiding. We thank you that in your love you bring us out into the open. And you bless us in ways that we, we could never deserve. We thank you for your son. We thank you for King David's forever king. We thank you for his death in our place. Thank you that he made... Enemies, friends, in his name we pray.